It's Tuesday the 11th of February and this is the Monocle Minute. Today, the arrival of a new Japanese embassy in Kosovo is a boost for the country's diplomatic clout, but not everyone's happy. It's 20 years since the end of the war in Kosovo and, and people have not enjoyed the dividend of peace that they expected. Plus, do we need to get better at managing the rise of populist politics? I'm Ben Ryland in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. Kosovo still isn't recognized by scores of countries around the world. More than a decade on from its unilateral declaration of independence from Serbia, Belgrade even claims to have persuaded more than a dozen countries to revoke their recognitions. So the opening of a new Japanese embassy in Pristina will be seized on as a ray of light in the diplomatic darkness. The question now is, what could it really mean for Kosovo's role on the international stage? Our man in the Balkans, Guy Delaunay, has this report. Kosovo currently needs all the friends it can get. A dozen years on from the euphoria of its unilateral declaration of independence, it's stuck in the debilitating diplomatic limbo. It can no longer claim to be newborn, as the iconic monument in Pristina puts it, and its teenage years are proving to be a particularly trying time. Recognitions haven't just stalled, they've gone into reverse, so while Kosovo's athletes and footballers may be able to compete on the international stage, its diplomats still don't have a seat at the United Nations. What's more, its young people are leaving in droves, they've lost hope in the dream of a prosperous, independent future, and they've lost faith in politicians who were heroes when they fought with the Kosovo Liberation Army, but whose feet of clay have been all too obvious since they entered government. Only masochists look towards Serbia. It enjoys the support of both Russia and China, neither of which recognise Kosovo. Serbia is also on the path to membership of the European Union, while people from Kosovo still need a visa to travel there. Ian Bancroft is a veteran of numerous international missions to Kosovo, and he's just published Dragon's Teeth, Tales from North Kosovo. But there's a constant, gradual outflow of people, and there's enormous concern partly because countries like Germany, um, Slovenia, Austria, Switzerland, they're all making it easier and easier to get work permits. Um, and, and, you know, it's 20 years since the end of the war in Kosovo. And, and people have not enjoyed the dividend of peace that they expected. So warming up its relationship with Japan would seem like a smart move by Kosovo. It's certainly been investing plenty of diplomatic capital. President Hashim Thatchi visited Tokyo twice in the space of a month last autumn. On both occasions, he was received by Prime Minister Abe Shinzo. As for Japan, Ian Bancroft says opening an embassy in Kosovo is the belated expression of a long-term interest. They had a very active representative in uh, Belgrade, who, who frequently came down to inquire about the realities of life um, for those where I lived in, in Mitrovica. And for a country so many thousands of, of miles or kilometers away, I was quite intrigued by this, this, this level of interest in the, in the mundane day-to-day -day, um, shenanigans of local politics and local security dilemmas. Um, in, quite impressed by the level of representation that the Japanese embassy had on the ground. The big question is whether this relationship will provide anything more substantial than a short-term boost to Kosovo's diplomatic ego. Japan has hardly been a major investor. The only venture of note is Hirano Mushrooms. It's set up shop on the south side of the ethnically divided town of Mitrovica. 
That's handy for locals craving their shiitake fix, but it's certainly not the kind of investment in industry or infrastructure that Kosovo needs, and Ian Bancroft says that Japanese players may find it hard to break into a scene that's been dominated by well-connected Western outfits. Western countries have been there for 20 years. Kosovo owns its independence to these people. And this is why, you know, the U.S. does get the big road building contracts and, you know, the, the, to rebuild the, the, the power plant at Obelich. I mean, there is a sort of Western capture of, of a lot of the big tenders. There aren't big sort of private initiatives in, in Kosovo. So it's a, very, it's a very difficult market for the Japanese to even to get into in that sense. Japan's influence is never going to counterbalance Russia and China, and the US and European Union will remain the key players in Kosovo. But people will be hoping that increasing diplomatic involvement will bring some tangible benefits, and Kosovo could certainly do with those. For Monocle, watching events in Pristina, I'm Guy Delaunay. Is the world entering a new golden age of populist politics? Well, the victory of Donald Trump in the United States and Brexit here in Europe has certainly emboldened the ambitions of some would-be leaders. But if such unexpected voting outcomes are to become, well, expected, is it time we all got better at managing the process? Monocle's affairs editor Christopher Cermak explains. Two European political earthquakes this week. The emergence of the nationalist Sinn Féin as Ireland's strongest party and the resignation in Germany of Angela Merkel's presumed successor, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer. Both have one key question in common. Should the political extremes be allowed a hand in governing? Let's start with Ireland, where Sinn Féin's surprising but narrow victory in parliamentary elections has plunged the country into uncertainty as the two establishment parties, Fianna Féu and Fine Gael, have refused to enter into any coalition with them, even though neither of those parties would seem to be able to govern on their own. Should these centrists rethink their stance? Next, consider Germany and a scandal in the eastern state of Thuringia, where a hung parliament led Merkel's Christian Democrats and the far-right Alternative for Germany to back the same candidate to lead the state. Though not a formal coalition, it marked the first time that centrists had even tacitly cooperated with the AFD at any level of government. That sent shockwaves through the German political establishment, forcing the National Party to intervene and Kramp-Karrenbauer on Monday to resign. As in Ireland, one question will continue to split Germany's conservatives. Is there ever a time to partner with the far right? An alternative tactic that has worked surprisingly well comes from my home country of Austria, where twice Austria's conservatives controversially agreed to partner with the far-right Freedom Party. Twice the Freedom Party collapsed in a scandal before the next election. Perhaps there's a lesson here for other countries to consider. Exclude national parties from governing at your own risk. Sometimes it's better to let them try and fail at governing with a chaperone before they gain enough popularity to take the reins all by themselves. My thanks to Christopher Cermak. Elsewhere on today's agenda... The first primary vote of the 2020 US presidential election takes place in New Hampshire today. 
and it's crucial the Democratic Party gets this one right. A software glitch at last week's Iowa caucuses did little to calm an already jittery corner of the electorate that desperately wants to oust Donald Trump in November's general election. A recent poll by the University of New Hampshire Survey Center found that 28% of primary voters in the state support Bernie Sanders, with Pete Buttigieg coming in second place with 25%, while Joe Biden trails with 11%. Singapore's biennial air show opens today, despite fears the event might have been cancelled due to the coronavirus. Ticket sales are down 50% and there are fewer participants. But Asia's highly anticipated aerospace event is proceeding, albeit with increased health and safety measures. Temperature checks will be in operation throughout the venue, while visitors will be encouraged to follow a no-contact rule by avoiding handshakes. And who's best placed to make judgments on the quality of architecture? Certainly not architects. If you're to follow recent events in Australia and the United States. In Washington, the Trump administration has drafted an executive order demanding all new government buildings be classical in style. Meanwhile, in the West Australian capital of Perth, a much-needed redevelopment of the city's famous beachside pavilion has been quashed by community opposition. In both cases, the experience of practicing architects who know that style does not determine the quality of architecture has been ignored. This is despite leading bodies, such as the American Institute of Architects, saying that such outcomes would set an extremely harmful precedent. We here at Monocle agree. If we look to similar junctures in the past, it's clear that the opinion of design leaders should be respected. Had we followed public opinion and the whims of politicians, we might have missed out on masterpieces such as Boston's United States Courthouse or the Opera House in Sydney. Read more about today's stories by subscribing to our daily email bulletin at our website. I'm Ben Ryland. The Monocle Minute returns on Wednesday.